the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602-508-0960. I am Seth Liebson. Uh, David Dahl. We didn't get your birthday report last hour as we were asking, David. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, so you had a great birthday celebration, <clears throat> I'm told. We went to the Rough Rider downtown. Yeah, yes. the Teddy Roosevelt. The Teddy Roosevelt. The, 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 the Teddy Roosevelt room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you have any Maxwell House coffee? Uh, no. Did no. they serve Maxwell House coffee? No, they did didn't. Did you ask the know. waiter if he knew that Teddy Roosevelt came up with the motto for Maxwell House Well, coffee? I didn't get that extensive. <laughs> but no, they, they did not even serve coffee. What do you mean that this? extensive? Hi, would you like to order? Sure, happy to. By the way, do you serve Maxwell House coffee? Oh, sorry, no, I'm not sure. We get it from Shamrock. Oh, okay. Well, did you know that Teddy Roosevelt invented the (laughs) motto for Maxwell House coffee? Good to the last drop. How extensive would that have been? About 15 syllables too extensive. Uh, All right, all right, go on. Uh, No, I I didn't get that far. Um, It was fun. I have took some pictures. It's a very rustic room. Very, a lot of bears. Uh, Edwardian. A lot of they bull some, mooses. They had some things on the wall, rabbits and, you know, goat's heads and things like that. Weird uh, uh, stuffed animals. Yeah. Yes. Um, what kind of food? Uh, I didn't eat much. Buffalo uh, burgers? No, they they had Moose more, burgers? Like, more like 1800s, early 19-aughts. Uh, Edwardian food, you might say. So they had like... I mean, I, I they had oysters there. I did not have any. They had a like a like a chopped up steak thing that I saw on the menu. Um, a lot of cobblers, things like that. You know, things like that. I you know that's not much more of a report than what you gave us yesterday before you went. What would you? What would you? I want. I, they, the menu obviously had to have had more than three items on. I I didn't eat. Um, but I, I think they had like some desserts, and do I need to go pull up the menu and <laughs> okay. give you a rundown? <laughs> Here's what I've single. learned, Mr. Bill. Are you aware? Are you here with me? What did they have at that restaurant? Oh, they had steaks and oysters and some desserts. Oh, sounds like a really different kind of restaurant. Let's go try that one. I think that th- that's really different. <laughs> steaks and seafood and dessert. We could go up and down the menu. No, I just want. They have a, they I, have I a have seafood bar. They have a main eat section. They had some pasta. Oh, they had main eats. Food to share. Desserts, food to share. You could share your food. Cocktails and elixirs. <laughs> they had cocktails, Mill. What a different kind of restaurant this is. My goodness, it we must go. Huh? It was underground. How many restaurants do you know that are underground? One. Other. Oh, yeah. One other. All right. Well, happy birthday again. I hope uh, it extends throughout the uh, rest of the year. And that may every restaurant you go to have steaks (laughs) and seafoods and desserts and food you can share and cocktails. May May that wish come true for you, David. All right. Just a little secret about most restaurants. I bet you're going to find them having a lot in common along those criteria. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. If you think of anything distinctive or different, let us know. Yeah, you'll think on it. It was a late night. Yeah. 
because of that last part, the cocktail menu, I'm sure. Hillary can't let go, John Hinderocker writes. Hillary Clinton was at the State Department yesterday for the unveiling of her official portrait as Secretary of State. She was ungracious as usual. Returning to the State Department for the unveiling of her official portrait, according to The Telegraph, Mrs. Clinton also used the occasion to display distaste for the policies of Donald Trump, the Republican former president who defeated her in the 2016 United States presidential election. Let's stop right there for a moment. Let's say you are the Secretary of State, uh, the former Secretary of State, and you're going for your official portrait. Do you take the occasion to blast a previous president whom you didn't even serve, much less one you might have? Okay, just there's that. Mrs. Clinton, the former U.S. Secretary of State, suggested that people might have questioned the U.S.'s ability to muster support for Ukraine because of Trump's legacy of alienating allies. How do you like that? So... (laughs) Trump's alienation of allies. She said people might have doubted that because we had burned so many bridges with our allies and our friends, she told current and former officials in the agencies or Nate Benjamin Franklin State Time, people might have doubted that because we had burned so many bridges with our allies and friends under Donald Trump. John writes, it's been a Democratic Party talking point for years, but there's no substance to it. Trump's foreign policies were successful. The Abraham Accords were a major accomplishment. His administration cemented our relationship with Israel, one of our most important allies. He smoothed over the gratuitous anti-British bias of the Obama-Clinton administration. He revitalized the NATO alliance by successfully pressing our allies to recommit to it by increasing their military spending. He stood up to China and focused on improving our relationship with India. Trump's foreign policy record was, on the whole, very good, and the idea that he burned so many bridges with our allies is sheer fantasy. Contrast that with the Obama-Clinton record, the disgraceful sucking up to Iran's mullahs, the Libya fiasco, the failure to identify Russia as a significant threat, trying to reset relations with them after saying the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back, the rebuffs of Israel and Obama's pathetic retreat from his red line in Syria. It would be interesting to hear Hillary explain how America's standing has been restored under the Biden-Blinken administration as long as she's waxing State Department ease. The catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan was the worst foreign policy disaster in many years. The Biden-Blinken administration just paid billions more to Iran's Iran's mullahs, continuing Obama's bizarre policy of friendship and financial support towards our bitterest enemy. enemy. He writes parenthetically, Neville Chamberlain may have underestimated Hitler and made a foolish deal on Czechoslovakia, but wouldn't wouldn't have occurred to him to fund Germany's war machine. Biden also sold out our allies and gave the Russians a reprieve by suppressing oil and gas production at the precise moment when our European allies need our fossil fuels now more than ever. And then there is Russia or more specifically Vladimir Putin. Defending democracy in Ukraine, expanding NATO, just as an aside, too too bad, Vladimir, you brought it on yourself, she said, prompting laughter and applause. Ah, yes, Vladimir, the same Vladimir whom Hillary courted at the beginning of her tenure as Secretary of State. At least a few of our readers may remember that the incoming Obama-Clinton administration faulted George W. Bush for being unduly hard on the Russians. Tensions between us and them, Hillary thought at the time, were our fault, hence her presenting the Russians with her famous 
reset button. Why did U.S.-Russian relations need to be reset? Because that meanie George W. Bush had been too tough on them. Obama and Clinton wanted to usher in a new era of accommodation, but that was then, and this is now. The Democrats have always been at war with Putin. The Hillary Clinton being that Hillary Clinton is ungracious is not new information. That she continued to be obsessed with her own political ups and downs has been apparent for quite a while. But she is also not very intelligent. For many years, Democrats have tried to promote Hillary Clinton as a uniquely brilliant person, the flower of Yale-educated womanhood, more than a match for any man. In fact, she was never more than a mediocre and unoriginal intellect and not very competent administrator. She has gone downhill steadily from there. As her State Department appearance exemplifies, we should all be eternally grateful that this mediocrity never became president. I want to say something about that. You know, um, it's an interesting point. I have never seen her, this great intellect, Hillary Clinton, I've never seen her say anything that smart. She let Donald Trump trounce her in the debates. The best she could muster up administratively is being close to Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin. I I just I don't I don't I have never heard her say anything that I mean she she can get through a sentence she can get through a speech, but it's not Margaret Thatcher it's not Jean Kirkpatrick it's not oh my God smart it's not Condi Rice smart okay anyway Rick is in Phoenix hi Rick hello there the magnanimous Mister Leibson how are you sir <laughs> I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you, and thanks for taking my call. You bet. I always enjoy hearing from you, hearing from Rob and from Dave. They are both outstanding, and it was nice to add the uh, to add Teresa to the mix too. Yes, sir. So you've got great callers. There's no two ways about it. Thank you, brother. Uh, before I get to my point about unifying the Republican Party. May I share just one thing with you? Here's my here's my trouble, uh, Rick, and it's oh. my fault. I've got a guest coming up, and I've got a commercial break right before that. You want to stay on line on the line and call back, or call back either way. Your pleasure. I just ask you to do so. If you give me about a half an hour, I'll come right back to you. Call us back in a half, or stay on hold for a half. Your choice. How's that? I apologize. That's my bad administration. I was administering the show like Hillary Clinton was administering state. Arguably, perhaps, with—well, we'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. This is so fun and a delight for me to welcome to the show one of my favorite people in Arizona, the whole Valley of the Sun, Anne Atkinson. She is the former executive director of the former T.W. Lewis Center for Personal Development at the Barrett Honors College at ASU. She wrote one of the most well-known and probably famous op-eds this Wall Street Journal will be publishing this year. She has been a crusader for free speech. Anne, how are you? Well, thank you, Seth. I am great, and it's really wonderful to be here with you today. I saw you were having quite the tete-a-tete with my producer, David Dahl, before you came on the show. He had a birthday celebration last night, Anne, at, the, um, at a restaurant that was, um, that was a Teddy Roosevelt-themed restaurant. And I asked him, oh, what was so cool about it? What was neat? What was Teddy Roosevelt-esque about it? And he said, well, you know, they had some steaks and seafood and desserts. And I thought, boy, that is a distinct restaurant. <laughs> we got to get the guy out a little more. What do you think, Ann? 
Well, I think so. And I, I know where he went. I've been there and it is a distinct restaurant and I think it's in a, a basement. So he's yeah. he has more places to explore in Arizona. Yeah, that's right. You have been you've been everywhere. You're like the Hank no- Snow song. You've been everywhere. And you were at ASU last night and there was an event with Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk and you and Mr. Lewis, Health, Wealth, and Happiness 2.0. Tell us about it. Tell us why this was different and what was done and said last night. Yes, thank you. Well, Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk were invited by Turning Point USA. So this was a student organization that planned and organized this event, meaning ASU could do nothing, that they had no input. And although ASU took credit for bringing these speakers back to campus. In fact, this was a student group, part of Turning Point, that made this happen. So the speakers were in common with our Health, Wealth, Happiness 1.0. This really was a standalone event, and it showed the public and the, the, the full house of participants who these people are. And Charlie and Dennis, interestingly, spent most of their time talking about religion and faith and morals and values and I couldn't stop but sit in the audience and just just wonder, how could the Barrett faculty, 39 of the 47 faculty members at Barrett the Honors College, say these, are, these speakers are purveyors of hate, yeah. threats to our democracy, anti-trans, anti-women, when they're simply mainstream conservatives with, with pretty standard viewpoints that wanted to spend a lot of time last night discussing these things like faith, morals, and values. That that kind of is to them, though, anything conservative, mainstream conservative is to them going to be hate filled. I mean, <clears throat> you get this not just from the faculty, you get this from our president of the United States, who was in Tempe last this morning, as you were there last night. He was there this morning. This is the same thing he says. You know, he says the Repu- as he's talking about bipartisanship and trying to make all these wonderful tributes to John McCain for his bipartisanship. He says that the Republican Party is a threat to the brick and mortar of our democratic institutions and the character of our nation. That was part of this Mr. Bipartisan speech. They own the realm, they think, right? Isn't that what it is? And anything that breaches their orthodoxy, orthodoxy is the right word. It means uh, right think. To them, you have to think the right way. Very Orwellian, too. Um, anything that breaches that is hate speech. That's that's how they that's how they marginalize us, diminish us, and strip us of our ability to have the same rights that they do. I think. I think. Yes, and you know, many of your listeners know by now that activist faculty at ASU are waging war against ideas they don't like. Yeah. Against the heterodox ideas that don't conform, even if those ideas are entrepreneurship, capitalism, free enterprise, faith. And these activists are self-appointed arbiters of speech that think they know better than the students. They are teaching these students to become dependent on a self-appointed authority. And in the absence of strong leadership, like that currently exists at Barrett, the Honors College, the activists assume control, and they use their official taxpayer-funded positions in their classrooms to condemn, censor, and intimidate speech that they do not like. I think that is Orwellian. Yeah, it really is. You know, and you, I'm just sitting here thinking about Prager and Kirk talking about faith. Uh, who wouldn't want to hear that, except 
you know, uh, Marxists who believe religion is the opiate of the masses. That's right there in uh, Marxist uh, in Marxist doctrine and in uh, the Communist Manifesto, as well as elsewhere. And that's what that's what it's all about. They they hate religion. And I wonder if you think the faculty, by and large, sees uh, their job as when students come to their classrooms or to their campus to strip them of these old, quaint notions of these kinds of morals they were brought up with. Do you think they see it as their role to strip them of those ideas they bring to college? I remember a meeting with the director level and above staff and and staff at ASU when I was still employed as executive director of the Lewis Center, and Dr. Crow explicitly talked about our obligation to teach morals. And I think these people believe they know the moral code that is righteous and that is acceptable and everything else they squash and asu knows this is an issue asu knows they have an activist faculty problem which is such a disservice to the wonderful faculty members at the university but asu is choosing to ignore the issue and as it relates to the health wealth happiness 1.0 condemnation campaign asu issued this report which which made me chuckle because it was an investigation of themselves And ASU chose to ignore the facts, to distract the public, to weather the storm, and hope to wait for a new news cycle. So this uh, ASU is ignoring the issue, but they know exactly what's going on. Did Dennis uh, do his uh, usual statement, which I think gets to part of the crux of these things as well, where he said one of the reasons they want us not to be here is that we would undo their you know, their year of teaching in about 30 minutes. He has different constructions on that. But did he? Did they get into that a little bit? That the, the teachers are really, yes. they're afraid of them more than anything else because they challenge their intellectual or their intellectual uh, uh, preaching. That He made that point. He made it well. He makes it often. But he re- re-emphasized an offer to these faculty that protested and called him an antebellum slaveholder apologist and the faculty that painted our event as a white supremacy event, which was interesting given our our speakers. And he made that offer and he said, look, I will have any of these professors who have called me all of these things on my national radio show with an audience of millions of people. All I ask in return is 30 minutes in their classroom with 20 students. You know what? I'll make the same offer. I'll make the same offer with this show. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give them two opportunities so they can make it a local call if they want. <laughs> I'm going to make the same offer. Any of those any of those 39 professors, I will give this show. I, I, I will welcome them on this show to talk with me if they will give me 30 minutes in their classroom. I'll do it. They won't do well, it. Well, and, and no one will take you up on that because no they fear your effectiveness. Do you uh, do you have time? I have to take a break. Do you have time for one more quick segment? A segment. I'd love your sense of the status of free speech, not only in Arizona but on our college campuses generally. Do you have a few more minutes to stay with us, Anne? As long as we have I, have you on the line. Yes, sir. That, Thank you. That would be wonderful. Uh, Anne Atkinson is our guest. Uh, Zena, the free speech princess warrior. That's her nickname. We'll be right back. That is the uh, great voice of Keith Whitley. The next great voice you're going to hear is uh, Zena, the free speech princess warrior, Ann Atkinson. She is the former executive director of the T.W. Lewis Center, which is also former at ASU. And um, Ann, 
you were at ASU for for health, wealth, and happiness with Dennis Prager and uh, and Charlie Kirk last night. Health, wealth, and happiness 2.0. You were talking to us about it. The students were there in force and in large numbers and loved it, as you uh, were telling us in the previous segment. Uh, but there is a free speech crisis. That's what you've called it at ASU. They have uh, issued a whitewash of a white paper of a report in defending their actions. What is the you've since you've become involved and enmeshed in this issue? Um, what is the state of free speech across our campuses generally, not only in Arizona but nationwide? What have you what have you been able to pick up and discern about free inquiry and commitments to? free academic thought and free speech? Well, Seth, I'm sorry to diminish the mood here, but in the higher education today, heterodox ideas are under attack. Last night, Dennis Prager asked the audience, how many of you students attending, of which there were many, feel that you fear retribution or retaliation if you express conservative ideas and a room full of hands went up? Mm-hmm. These are students that fear retaliation from their faculty. And as I said before, in the, in the lack of strong leadership, the activists assume control. Mm-hmm. And too many universities won't risk standing up to the faculty. Right. The universities defend and deny the actions of these faculty, even when there's evidence proving what happened. In the issue of ASU, students courageously came forward to discuss how their faculty intimidated them in the classrooms. And ASU had completely ignored the students. The many students that wrote and submitted their testimonials, ASU says it didn't exist. And I have to tell you, as a result of this free speech crisis at ASU, I've been in touch with many people who've been canceled by higher ed nationwide, and they all say the same thing. The university will never admit it was wrong. They will never bend or waver instead of addressing these issues and taking the opportunity to improve this environment for these students. You know, it's it, 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 it's so bad that I know people of letters, people of high uh, and accomplished educational success and degrees who are now rethinking whether they would send their children to college campuses these days. You know, it's a real interesting debate. You know, what to say to a high school senior or a high school junior about going on to college uh, and university. I mean, there's obviously some great colleges and universities. The problem is we could name them probably on one hand. And there are some great departments in a lot of other colleges and universities where, you know, their political science isn't the major or where the humanities are not the majors. But, you know, to the degree that politics are even discussed in those universities they are saturated in socialist Marxist thought. That is the environment at most college campuses these days. And one wonders what the value is of sending a child to be uh, indoctrinated uh, for four years in those universities. And I correct myself when I say four years, because the average time for an undergraduate to get through college these days is six years. It's an odd thing to think that we're spending eighty dollars to $100,000 at private places to indoctrinate students. And as Dennis Prager said last night, today, sending your children to a four-year university is playing Russian roulette with their values. Yes. And I've seen, I've seen the silver lining of higher education. The Lewis Center was a part of that. And, but you just don't know what classes you'll be in. So parents, students, you need to be aware of who are, who are teaching these classes. And if you have transparency to see a syllabus in advance, to see the list of reading materials, 
to read your, your professor's CV or basically their resume to see what their writings and published works include, do it. If you don't have access to that, request it. You need to be aware of who will be teaching your children and the universities have an obligation to provide that transparency. And the public needs to be aware too of what is happening. And that's where we've had so many people share the story of what's happening at ASU, which was expected to be a self-proclaimed bastion of free speech. But in fact, that's not the case. So people need to be aware. Parents and students need to take matters into their own hands. But alas, they still are playing Russian roulette with their values. It's a great phrase. It's a great line for it. Uh, Anne, you're a great advocate and uh, a great friend, uh, not only to this show and to this audience, but to the free speech community and personally to me. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. You bet. That was Ann Atkinson. I, you know, this has been going on for a long time. It's just been going on under the radar. And thank God people like Ann have brought it up to the surface and into the public because it is in the college's interest to keep it under the radar. No more. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602 Zero. You want um, a really good essay on how long this has been going on, that which Ann Atkinson and I were talking about, uh, go to uh, whatever your favorite search engine is and look up an essay by Harry Jaffa called The Reichstag is Still Burning. The Reichstag is Still Burning. It's a lecture when he ta- where he talks about the upheavals at Claremont McKenna College in the late 1960s when the Black Panthers and Weathermen were thro- were uh, uh, were um, detonating bombs on the campus and demands for racial centers and racialized centers there. It was so bad that a friend of mine, a uh, friend of David's, uh, left uh, Claremont McKenna, or Claremont Men's at the time. But um, Harry Jaffa was talking about as one of the professors he thought with a you know sane head on his shoulders kept appealing to the Board of Trustees about trying to do something about this. And he wrote, um, Harry, uh, he spoke to one of these uh, trustees who told him, Harry, uh, you don't understand. Rome wasn't built in a day. Harry says, I replied, you don't understand. Rome is not being built. Rome is burning. He was as blank and uncomprehending as one of the teenage militants. All of these trustees were as tough as nails over their brandy and cigars at the end of comfortable banquets. Apparently, however, it was not Churchill's brandy that they drank, nor Churchill's cigars that they smoked, since they themselves were so far from the bombs and the fires and the threats. It's hard to comprehend their detachment and pusillanimity. They could have made a difference, but they would not do so. One could say that about the Board of Regents at ASU as well. Uh, Rick, thank you for your hold. I appreciate it, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for that important and interesting interview with Ann. Yes, you bet. Uh, raised a couple of questions for me. Uh, one, do you, do you know what she is doing now and what the status of her battle with ASU is? Yes, uh, she is uh, working to uh, with a group of folks to um, help uh, rewrite uh, some of the revised statutes uh, that govern uh, our public universities uh, so that this cannot happen again. 
And as I understand it, the uh, Joint House and Senate Ad Hoc Committee on Free Speech at our campuses is uh, going to hold a follow-up hearing to uh, examine uh, further uh, uh, further investigations that have been taking place. So uh, she's staying uh, full on the case. Well, that's encouraging and good news. The second question it raised, she mentioned uh, that there were activist professors. And my question is, are there more activist professors than there are professors that are decent or normal or whatever you well, want to Well, you know, there's different levels of act, excuse me, activism. Uh, you know, there are, I would say most faculty are a herd of what was once called a herd of independent minds. They're not so independent. They're a herd of one thought. There are, you know, at any given campus, uh, at least, at least 80, at least an 80 percent agreement on ideology, at least. Uh, Some is much more. Some is much more. And the question of whether that 80 percent is going to be, quote unquote, activist is its own question. So in the case of Barrett, uh, uh, Barrett Honors College, um, it was it was the vast majority of professors who wrote this about Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk and wrote that they were, you know, white uh, White nationalists and right. uh, and and uh, and spewers and purveyors of hate. Yeah. Um, so it was it was the vast majority of that faculty that w- you would have to say was yes a majority activist. Well, well, what I was thinking is in context of what Anne was saying, if 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 the number of crazies let let me change it to the phrase crazies uh, are l- less. Than the number of normal people, why are the normal ones not standing up and saying, whoa, wait a minute, stop it, you can't do that? There's a lot of pressure. You know, they can make your life very uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, there's a lot of ways they can make your life uncomfortable, and, yeah. and, it, and there's a lot of pressure. Uh, in the case of Anne, she was fired. In the case right. of a woman at uh, Grady Gamage who helped facilitate the event, she was fired. Now, yeah. some faculty can't be so easily fired, but boy, they can make your life awfully difficult. There's a lot right. of ways a university can create an atmosphere of difficulty for you. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing about a lot of that. I think you've talked about a lot of that and interviewed and with Tom Lewis and yeah. some others and right. whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Seth, b- speaking of uh, being magnanimous, uh, I, I thought... David's uh, choice of bumper music yesterday was was really good, didn't you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I no, I really didn't. And um, and I told him yesterday I would not criticize him for it. Yes. Uh, but that was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And, I remember. Uh, the you reason Denny's the reason Denny's serves breakfast twenty four hours a day is you can always start your day again. Okay. And, you know, All right. What, well, let me throw something. Ar- at Aristotle has an interesting has an interesting um, has an interesting point that oh. uh, fire fire burns in uh, Athens as it burns in Persia. That is to say, certain things are just true no matter where they are. Yes. Fire, fire doesn't distinguish its character between you know Athens and. Iran, let us say. And um, the music that was so um, discordant yesterday 
was as discordant today as it is today. It's just okay. that yesterday I was putting skid chains on my tongue okay. in honor of his birthday and letting him have whatever he wanted. Have you ever had a child who on their birthday asked for a certain kind of food item? And it wouldn't have been your taste, but it was their birthday, so they got to have right. it. Maybe cake for breakfast kind of thing. Right. Yeah, right. You, you just so. let it slide for a day. Yeah. This, so you were as being, Margaret you were... Thatcher said, this far and no further. <laughs> All right. You're the boss, you know, of course, so, but you were being magnanimous yesterday, so that's, I, I applaud you for that, but I also, you know, I, I recognize that, that you are the boss, and, and it's your call, so, hey, but, you know, there's something else. I'm not else. really the boss, but well, it is my call. Yeah, it is your okay. call. There All you right. go. Right. There you. And, and like you've said before, I remember you telling me many years ago, the bumper music is for you. Yes, and I've, yes. I've heard thank you for remembering that. Say that. It's you know, about the me. The bumper music is for the talk show host. Yes. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, to get you going, to get you in the mood and all that good stuff. Yes, thank you. So here, here's what, uh, my, one of the things I wanted to share with you, my thinking, is that you are very fortunate to be surrounded by such a great group of associates as David and Bill and Terry, who were courageous enough to uh, do an intervention on your directional disability. Yeah, can you I imagine know. what I would know. have happened if they hadn't done that? I, it would have been. You awful. might have ended up yeah. with the Wicked Witch of the West yeah. instead of Glinda, the Good Witch of the North, and the Wizard of Oz. You don't. You, you don't lie. You don't lie. It could have been awful. <laughs> It could have been off. I got to take a break. Hold on. Stay. Okay. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. All right, Rick, let's get to the point. What's up, brother? Okay. Hey, just one quick thing, too. You're talking about Hillary Clinton reminded me I've had a wish for a long time that Bill Clinton would cleanse his soul and become a whistleblower. But I suspect he's not ready to commit suicide. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So uh, my deal about the unity of the Republicans, that was my response to the debate. I wish, I, I, I just wish that we could have more of a sense of unity. I wish we could have more of a sense of we're the adults instead of the children. Uh, and it reminded me of your uh, monologue, and especially the uh, the, the uh, part of uh, uh, our Arizona senator, his Sen- speech oh, that uh, you read. McCain, uh, no, Biden, the, Kelly, the true Cinema, conservative, Barry Goldwater. Yeah, Barry. Yeah, his speech, uh, part of his speech that you that you read in that monologue. Uh, talking about the fact that, you know, when, when he was saying, you know, uh, we need to grow up and, and hang together and get together, uh, even though maybe uh, this moderate Republican is not what we'd really choose, but we need to grow up. And now it's time for the moderate and the left Republicans to grow up and get with the conservatives and the MAGA and the rest of us. Look, I don't even, you know, this, uh, yes, I agree totally. And I think part of 
part of the issue is I I don't even know what MAGA means, to be honest with you. I mean, I do and I do. I know what it literally means as make America great again. But who doesn't want to be that? Who doesn't want to make America great again? I mean, what? why is that a pejorative within the conservative movement? I don't even understand it. And I don't think to the degree that conservatives shrink from that label, they're doing themselves or our movement any favor to try and distinguish themselves from people that want to make America great again. Look, <laughs> you ask five Trump supporters about four, five different policies, and, and they're all Trump supporters, but ask them their opinions on five different policies, you're not going to get one answer. You're not going to get two answers. You're not going to get three answers. It's an approach to constitutionalism is what it is. It's an, it's an approach to reclaiming conservative common sense along the lines of what Sarah Huckabee Sanders was not left or right or what Ronald Reagan said was not up or down, but now the distinction between normal and crazy. What's my clock look like, David? Am I out of time? I have, I have a little more time? I'm out. Okay. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.